They say that in the case of a mysterious death, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Cold cases come at different temperatures. Wrap up warm, we're at absolute zero. Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling and unsolved crimes. Episode 1 River Island About a year ago, my family and I moved house. Our youngest child was preparing to go to university and we decided to downsize. Now, like most people moving to a new area, I set about doing some research into the place we were moving to. And people have been living in this neck of the woods for a very, very long time, for thousands of years. But it wasn't stories of Anglo-Saxons and Vikings that caught my imagination. What really caught my imagination was a story within living memory and something that happened about 200 yards from where I'm talking to you now. My name is Ken Davis. It's Thursday, March the 26th, 2020. We're in the middle of a COVID epidemic. I'm self-isolating and I'm not enjoying it. That said, it has given me an opportunity to pull something together that I've been meaning to pull together for about the last year. This podcast is the culmination of that work and it's an ongoing piece of work and one I very much hope you'll be able to help me with. We moved to the edge of a small village on the Derbyshire Staffordshire border in England called Newton Solney. It's a really typical English village, a 700 year old church, a great cosy little pub. The famous Repton Public School is a mile or so away in the northeast down the single road that passes through the village. If you drive through Newton Solney in a southerly direction, after a mile you'll reach Winds Hill on the outskirts of Burton-upon-Trent, a large town famous the world over really for its brewing industry. The road follows the meanders of the River Trent, which although being one of the major rivers of England, here it splits into a series of shallow tributaries and channels, forming small islands in the river. Now you can't reach these islands very easily. There are ways to get on them, but you'd need to be really familiar with the area to know how. But it was through one of those ways back in 1971. In fact, exactly 49 years to the day, a local off-duty police constable on a shooting expedition on one of these islands made a macabre discovery. What I found was like what a dog had unearthed, he said. What looked like an old bag of cement. I went back, I got a spade, and I found the body. So began one of the UK's longest unsolved and perplexing murder cases. The body was of a young man found in a shallow grave, virtually naked, buried in a kneeling position with his hands and ankles tied behind his back. All he was wearing 
with socks and a lady's gold wedding ring. In 1971, there were 459 homicides in England and Wales. The chances of being murdered was eight in a million. The detection rate was high. The perpetrator was often in a close relationship to the victim. In every case, the victim was known, identifiable, or very soon to be identified. Every case, but one. In 1971, the police had no idea who the victim was. And today, 49 years later, they still have no idea. There have been hunches, there's been optimism, all to no avail. Today, 49 years later, the police still have no idea who the body belongs to. And that is really, really unusual. In the UK, it is extraordinarily rare for a body to go unnamed and unclaimed. A quick check on Wikipedia of unidentified murder victims in the UK lists 18. And that's not 18 in a year, that's 18 in 100 years. So. I became more and more interested in the case, and for the record, before anybody wonders if I'm the perpetrator inserting myself back into the investigation, I've got an alibi. I was eight, and I was living 200 miles away. So why now? Why bother? Well this time next year, it will be 50 years since he was discovered. So that is a significant milestone. So right now there's still a good chance that people who knew the victim are alive in their 70s probably, but still around. And there's still a good chance that people who know what happened are still around. And of course, there's still a reasonable chance that the person or persons who murdered him are still around. And you never know, deathbed confessions are a real thing. But of course, the real reason is he deserves it. He deserves justice. Justice has been denied for half a century. And to those who may say I'm playing detective, well maybe I am. But the victim has been waiting for 50 years and I'm no detective. I'm simply going to tell the story, publish the podcast and hope that enough interest is generated that someone's memory may be jogged. Let me take you to the scene of the crime. I'm standing in a field next to the River Trent, near the English Midlands town of Burton-upon-Trent. To describe our location more accurately, we're actually standing on an island in the river. It's actually quite a big island, this, about a mile long by half a mile wide, running from the northerly bridge of the two main bridges that cross the Trent east to west in Burton. And the island extends for about half a mile to the northeast. We've probably got another hour or so of daylight, I'd say. It's starting to get chilly. There's a stiffening breeze blowing across the river from the west and the sun has fallen behind the clouds now. The whole island feels really quiet. There's a cricket pitch I noticed on the other side of the island and that's at the end of a single track that takes you onto the island. But to reach where we're standing now is a 10 minute walk in completely the opposite direction to the cricket club. I had to leave the track, park the car, walk here. It's a pretty desolate place. It's hidden away. 
it's not the kind of place you'd find easily. I've been here for about 20 minutes and ever since getting onto the island, I haven't seen a soul. There's literally no one here. And you can understand that. The only way on here is by taking a narrow track off the busy bridge that crosses the Trent in Burton. And there are a few houses as you come onto the island, but after that, nothing. You might be able to hear the, the river in the background. It's been pretty wet recently. In fact, not so long ago, the river was in full flood and I can still see the debris of the flood being held in the, in the branches of the trees that line the river. The flow of the river is still pretty fast. The channel from where I'm looking is about 30 to 40 meters across and I can see a big weir down about 100 meters to my left. That's northeast of where I'm standing. That seems to be associated with the old flour mill that's across the river, uh, which now seems to be converted to what looks like rather smart apartments uh, on the other side of the river. There are lots of birds around uh, in the trees and the river. I've just seen a cormorant and herons and geese. and There seems to be an endless parade of swans drifting down the river. But you do get the impression that this is not a place that's very often disturbed there's no footpath as such i just walked around the side of the farmer's field and you can tell from the grass and the way it's growing that it, it isn't often walked along so between the field and the river there's a small wooded area about 30 meters wide uh, there's some kind of building here on the bank of the river there's been foundations here there's it's either been a house it seems unlikely or or some kind of industrial building but it's it's very old, centuries old. The ground is uh, uneven. There are mounds and hollows as you move from the river to the field. And it's overgrown with ivy and ground cover. Uh, again, just giving the impression that it's not a place that's often visited by people. But people have been here. There are old bits of litter, a couple of old beer cans. So people have obviously come along this way. Fishing, maybe, that would make sense, but it, it doesn't look like it's been disturbed in some time. And I'm left with the impression that you would have to be really familiar with the locality to find your way here. You wouldn't find it by accident. Years ago, there used to be a bridge where we're standing now that was washed away again in a previous flood. But you can still, still see the foundation and it crossed from the west, from the Newton Road Winds Hillside to where we're standing now and it was over that bridge that now no longer exists back in March 71 a local off-duty police special constable off on a pigeon shooting expedition made his macabre discovery right where we're standing now and one that has baffled police ever since so this is where the story all started The man who found the body was David Nathan, a special policeman at the time. Now that's a voluntary role within the police. He was also a partner of a company called Time Consortium, who were based in Newton Road, Winds Hill, directly opposite across the river from where the body was found. He ran that business with Garth Hamp Gopsill and Garth's wife, Anne, who lived on the premises. The business was a watch and clock repairers, but they were also registered firearms dealers. 
David Nathan, in his statement to the police, said the following. The premises back on to the River Trent and from the side of the premises there is access to a wooden bridge which crosses the river onto the site of a flint mill which was demolished in 1948. Access to the bridge is by way of double gates which are constantly locked with a hasp and padlock. I have the key to the padlock, so has Garth. The same padlock has been in use for four years to my knowledge. I have an arrangement where there is free access to the bridge and the old flint mill mainly for the purposes of shooting vermin and target practice. And in return, I keep unauthorised people off the bridge and the land as we're in a good position to see any intruders, particularly when we're working in the workshop. At about 7.30pm on Friday, March the 27th, I went through the gates over the bridge to that mill site with a view to shooting pigeons in Bass's Meadow. I went across to the far side where the ground rises and what was once two kilns. From this vantage point, one is able to see quite a large expanse of the meadow. It is safe to say that I've been on this particular vantage point every day in the week, including Saturdays, but only occasionally on a Sunday, for the past four years. As I approached the top of the rise, I noticed some earth had been scraped away, which I thought consistent with it being having done by vermin, possibly a fox. It left a saucer-shaped effect in the ground, measuring about two feet across and perhaps six inches deep. In the centre of the hollow, I saw something white, about the size and shape of a saucer. I just looked and carried on, only after a short pause to look at it. But I returned after about a minute because there was nothing in the meadow to shoot at, and I then had a closer look at the object. I felt sure that the disturbance had been caused by vermin and that they had been trying to unearth whatever it was that I could see. It was still just about daylight, so I went back across the bridge to get a spade. Garth had gone to the grammar school where he was giving instructions to the scouts in the use of firearms. I returned with the spade and dug around the object and quickly realised it was a human skull. I stopped digging as soon as I realised what it was. I went back to the house where I telephoned Garth and asked for a message to be got to him requesting his return. He returned within minutes and after he had seen what I had found, he rang the police station and spoke to Detective Inspector Huff. Detective Inspector Huff and a detective sergeant arrived after a few minutes and I pointed out to them what I'd found. I have naturally given the matter a lot of thought since the body was discovered, but I cannot recollect having seen any sign of earth disturbance at that spot before. I've walked over that spot every time I have gone onto that land, and as I've already said, that is every day of the week, and including the occasional Sunday, and I cannot say I have noticed anything unusual about it before. What's unusual about this case is that the most important aspect of the investigation is missing, the identity. In most true crime scenarios I've ever encountered, it's about who killed this person and that person has a name and a photograph, a history, a set of friends, relations, a job, a car, a mobile phone, each of which 
provide critical clues for the police, but not this time. Of course, one of the reasons why the police seek to identify victims as quickly as possible is because it immediately gives them a set of friends, family and lifestyle that needs to be investigated. And as the vast majority of murderers are known to their victims, it's a great start. But when identification proves impossible, the police have far less to go on. It becomes a real whodunit with no obvious suspects. And that's where the police found themselves in March 1971. And that's not to say there were no clues. As we'll see, there definitely were, and quite unique clues, quite unusual traits that should have made identification feasible. But for one reason or another, it never happened. Thanks for downloading the podcast. If you're getting as intrigued as I am about this case, good, I need your help. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered to your phone, tablet or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify or Podbean. Now, back to the story. So I've known about this story for about a year and I run a business full time and time's pretty precious. I'm a pretty busy person, but it's a story I just couldn't shake out of my mind. But I'm not an investigator, I'm not a journalist, I'm just somebody who's stumbled across a story and can't really forget about it. So I don't really know where to start if I'm going to do something about it. Could I, should I, track down David Nathan? Is he still alive? Should I talk to him? I checked the online phone directory, there were no records. If he was alive, he was ex-directory and so that's the end of that. But at that point, this story took the first in a series of bizarre twists. And I have to be careful about what I say about this twist for reasons which will become apparent. Now I share the office in Derby, which is about 10 miles away from Burton with some other people, another business that I sublet some space to on the floor above. I was having a coffee with them one morning. I was bemoaning the immediate dead end that I'd reached with this story. When one of the people I was talking to said, what was that name again? David Nathan. Is he from Burton? Was the reply. I know him. Now, David Nathan is a unusual name. So that's a bit of a coincidence. But he was insistent. Yeah, he's probably in his 70s now. He's an ex-jeweller. Which he was. So how do you know him? I can't tell you. I'll get you his number though, but you must never say where you got it from. And sure enough, five minutes later, I had his number. One of the things I find most troubling about this case is the name, Fred the Head. It seems to dehumanize him, to reduce him to an object. Problem is, everybody involved in this case for the last 50 years knows him by that name. But this was a real person with a mother, a father, brothers, sisters, who knows, he may have had children. So here's our challenge, our job, and I include you in this dear listener, is to give him back his real name, his real identity, and hopefully, eventually, real justice. 
There are a number of people who have been part of the journey with me from the beginning, and you will start to meet them in later episodes. The next voice you hear belongs to Jess Hassel. She works with me in the office in Derby, and she's been involved with the project from the very beginning. Never. I'm recording, Jess. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Not badly. It's weird. It's weird, Jess. What? I just rang it. And it's now a messaging service. It's probably just because they did 141. Yeah. Leave it a second. No, I'm going to ring him now. Because I want to get the message, I'll leave. Message for David Nathan. David, my name's Ken Davis, and we're working on a story at the moment. The story you probably know well about the guy that was uh, found in 1971 by yourself, I think, uh, who became known as Fred the Head. Uh, I'm really uh, keen to have a conversation with you about that, uh, and I hope you don't mind me making contact with you, but I am very, very interested in talking to you about it. Uh, I wonder if it'd be possible for you to give me a call back. Thank you, David. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Next time on The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head. Hello. Hello, David. My name's Ken Davis. Is it convenient to talk for a moment? Uh, It depends what it's about. If you're aware of anything relevant to this story, I really need to know. Contact me at fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. That's fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. But a couple of final things to mention. Don't jump to conclusions till you've heard the full story. Be careful not to point the finger at innocent people. But if you do know something, let me know, or visit the Facebook group, Who Was Fred the Head, and join the conversation. Until next time, goodbye. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced, and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>